Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am your host, Scott Chaloner, and you join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost today, I'm delighted to welcome Mark Sarfo-Kantanka onto the programme. Mark is a director at Cellar Door Promotions, an events management business in Croydon that challenges people's perceptions by implementing groundbreaking creative experiences unconstrained by venue capacity or location. Uh, Mark, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me, Scott. It's delightful to, uh, yeah, to take part in this podcast. It's a real pleasure uh, welcoming you onto the air with us as well, Mark. And thank you ever so much for your time in that. And um, if we dive in by addressing the topic of leadership, since that's why you are here, um, I'm interested to understand what that word leader actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Yeah, sure. I think um, leadership for me, I think, well, naturally I'm, I'm an introvert. So leadership is something I've had to grow into. Definitely as the business has evolved um, over time. Uh, leadership is uh, you've got a sense of responsibility and purpose as a leader um, it's definitely concerned with influencing whilst at the same time developing people uh, within your remit um, there are many great leaders that I've looked up to for, for guidance and my own influence and the likes of uh, I, I guess typically if you look at sports people Muhammad Ali is is uh is someone that has probably influenced mm. everybody by the way he's 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 he conducted himself and his leadership style. It was in a very different way to someone else, um, like I guess Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. Um I read his book recently, Shoe Dog, and his leadership style was very much concerned with surrounding himself with, with the best people to build a best team. So leadership is it takes many different facets, but the key is uh, around influencing, developing, and, and bringing people together uh, around a shared common goal to help everyone perform to the best of their abilities. Um, so yeah, for myself, leadership really revolves around those two main strands, whilst having a really good um, handle on making sure that you're surrounding yourself with the best people. And thinking of your personal leadership style now, um, what, how would you describe that compared to, say, the example of Phil Knight that you just mentioned there? Um, I feel, well, definitely after I read his book, I think that there are, very, there are a lot of similarities to the way Phil has led um, Mike and, and how I've evolved my own leadership style. Uh, I'm a great listener, and listening is so key if you're going to be able to lead effectively. If you look at some of the best leaders in this country that have led as prime ministers or in business, for me to stand at ones that have been the ones that have time to listen um, and, and take on board the viewpoints of others. That's something that I very much try to embody in myself, uh, whether it's within my team or amongst other leaders. There's always room for development um, and there's always scope for um, better learning. Uh, again, I referenced someone like Muhammad Ali, the absolute amazing belief he had in himself is, again, another leadership trait that I've had to uh, develop. 
definitely as we've evolved a business, as we've opened up new businesses within um, Celador, um, as we've moved into uh, more consumer-facing uh, uh, sectors or having a strong belief in oneself and sticking to one's guns um, is, is, is so key and so important if one is going to uh, uh, continue that journey and have that confidence and embody and ensure the confidence that people have in you or in this case having myself to continue that journey with me. Um, I've also recognized that it's important to have a have a desire, it may sound strange, but have a desire to be willing to be wrong. And um, you have to be fearless in your determination. And it's probably no no more apparent than a current climate where we're in an unknown there's a lot of uncertainty. We've never lived in a global pandemic, the current generation, and even past generations. So there isn't a right answer to what one does. So when one has a belief, it's to really be fearless and determined if we're really going to come out of this um, successfully. So that's something that's really key for myself right now um, and being fearless has been um, a trait that I've had to really, again, take hold of and, and and grasp over the past few months. And considering that the ongoing pandemic situation is one of the greatest challenges of our time that business leaders are having to navigate, um, it would, I suppose it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent this whole situation has affected you and Salador as a business, because the events management sector certainly has uh, felt the pinch of this whole uh, this whole situation. Absolutely. Um, on the 20th of March, once industry was, was instructed to close um, and social distancing came into play, events in particular fell off a cliff. We're seeing the wide range in ramifications to uh, some of our most favourite and established venues, the South Bank Centre, the National Theatre, theatres across London, across the UK, across the world have been impacted. So in terms of revenue, we lost half a million revenue just over the summer alone. Um, and that's nothing, there was nothing that one could have done to, to have foreseen that. And with no visibility going forward, it's been really important to pivot the business. Fortunately, as opposed to just being uh, focused on B2B versus the business, we've also, over the past three years, developed our B2C channels. Hence why we opened uh, a coffee shop and also, I guess, more relevant a co-working space to support SMEs. So we've been able to pivot and switch to digital um, during the period, um, improving the digital content and supporting SMEs. Knowing that we're walking the same journey as them has been uh, a sense of uh, reassurance in in the way we are able to communicate effectively. There's a sense of trust, which again, if we're looking at the subject matter, having trust in your leader is, is such an important um, trait and important tool. And it also brings a sense of authenticity when when we're communicating, people know that we are, I guess, swimming in the same boat, swimming in the same in the same waters. Um, with regard to the events, we've again had to pivot where possible to embrace social distancing. Uh, it's been it has been challenging. Notwithstanding that, we sought to really use this time to focus on strategy. Uh, where are our strengths 
as an events company. Um, our strengths are offering a bespoke service to our clients, a high-end bespoke service to clients who have a sense of authenticity in what they want to achieve and how they want to communicate with their target audience. Uh, we were delighted to be um, awarded the brief by Pepsi recently to produce a, a drive-in screening of the Champions League final um, just last Sunday on the 23rd of August. So I think that sort of activation just demonstrates that as long as one is uh, open to, to new initiatives, as long as one is, uh, again, as long as one seeks to all, also maintain a profile, it's, it's very easy in the current climate to feel sorry for oneself, to feel that the world's been put to right and there are no opportunities. But by focusing on strategy, by making sure that we're still marketing ourselves and our presence is still in the public domain, it has uh, enabled us to have opportunities like the Pepsi deal. So to run an event for one of the largest soft drink brands globally, hosting and screening what is probably the second largest football event in the world um, as a safe, contactless, flawless technical production, I think it's, 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 it resonates as to how strong the Cedador brand is and how we've been able to um, remain flexible and agile during this current climate. And having built up a brand that has been able to adapt to such a challenge, do you have any words of advice for aspiring youngsters out there who are looking to maybe set up and lead their own businesses or perhaps stepping into a leadership role in an established firm for the first time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a word of advice to any youngster or potentially even anyone who's currently in business and who's struggling or who needs light in the tunnel. First and foremost, we're all in this together. Um, you're not alone at all. There, there's been a lot of uh, emphasis put on digital and moving online. And it can be daunting when one looks at other profiles, how many followers people have, how many views people are getting. The reality is that it doesn't necessarily translate into bottom line um, money in the bank. The most important thing one should look at is is their tribe. So ignore the followers and look at the people that you're building within your network who resonate with what you're saying and who themselves can form their own tribes to spread the word of what you're doing. That will enable you to build your audiences. There's a great book which some of you may have read by a fantastic um, and inspirational gentleman called Seth Godin called Tribes. And it really looks at um, the concept of heretics being the new leaders, those who are really keen to upset the status quo. Um, if you are able to disrupt the status quo, you will lead people in a new direction. And nowhere is that more relevant than in the current climate where we're in, that we're in, which is chaos. As I said earlier, there's, there is no right answer as to how we can come out of this current crisis. Mm. So be determined, be brave, and really believe in yourself and really look at building a tribe as opposed to followers. If you're online, again, look at your, your, your tribe, the people that are engaging with you. If it's 10, having 10 people that believe in your product and your proposition, your service is better than having a million with only one person or that one million believing in you. 
very sound advice indeed and one certainly for anybody tuning into this to uh, to take away uh, for sure and you mentioned some incredible plans that are on the horizon for uh, Salador over the uh, the course of the year of course uh, Mark but before we do just wrap things up on the uh, the program uh, today what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over the uh, the next year as these plans come to fruition what we're really looking to achieve over the next year is to see some of the uh, the plans that we've 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 scribbled out, we've we've argued over as part of our business strategy planning come into fruition. We survived the 08 crisis. It's probably six months into the current global pandemic, and we're still here. We're still um, pitching. We're still active. Our energy is still very infused. So if we're able to um, um, fulfill on, on some of the objectives that we've set out, namely developing our, uh, our, our model with the SMEs and the co-working space, I think co-working is something that's really going to explode as we continue the recovery phase, as people start to move away from city and town centres to more residential hubs, uh, to commuter areas, people working from home has been uh, it's been it's been great, but stepping out of their home maybe on a two to three day basis, where there's still that social interaction, will enable co-working operators like ourselves to benefit. We specifically target creatives, and again, through the social uh, exclusion that coronavirus has caused. But now we believe a first for social interaction. So events will come back and rebound very quickly once this crisis is over. And it's important for us to be ready to fulfill the demands that society and brands will have at that moment. So being ready for that is key. Satisfying and supporting that SME is very key as well. It can be a lonely place. It can be a very fragmented um, place as an SME, mm. uh, whether you've been going for a while or whether you're newly established. So being able to lend that support and that experience and um, to others during this current climate is, is something that we look forward to doing more of under Nexus. Sounds like it's going to be a very interesting uh, few months um, ahead. Um, Mark, I have to say, it's been a real, real pleasure having you joining us. Thanks ever so much, of course, for taking the time to come onto the programme. And I think it would actually be wonderful in a few months' time to welcome you back onto the air with us just to see how things are getting on with those plans. We'll be delighted. Actually, yeah, it'll, be, it'll be great to, to come back. And I think the platform that you've created here um, by welcoming SMEs and giving SMEs a voice um, alongside established, uh, I guess, uh, committee members um, within and your cohort, you like to David Blunkett, Jeff Perth, and Strauss. It's it's yeah commendable, particularly during during the, the current climate. So thank you. It's incredibly important, we feel, to give the authentic voices of British industry in all corners of it a voice, uh, Mark, absolutely. Um, we thank you ever so much, um, of course, for taking the time to come on and share your views. And most importantly, until we do hopefully touch base again in future, do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. Thank you. You Coming- too. Thanks ever so much, Mark. Um, coming up next on the programme today, we'll be keeping it Celador orientated by being joined by another member of the company's senior leadership team in the shape of creative director Farouk Dean. 
Uh, Farouk, I'd also like to extend a very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for your time in joining us on the programme today. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure having you join us um, as well. Um, As I explained to uh, Mark just now, since we're here to discuss leadership, I often like to ask guests coming onto the programme what the word leader actually means to them on a personal basis. So what is your view on that? What do you think the role of a leader actually is? I've always thought that the role of uh, a leader is twofold. The leader sets the standards um, that the collective, the tribe, the group, the team um, should collectively be working towards. So there's a standard there and a standard setter in terms of the, what's acceptable in detail. And then what you can maybe measure that leadership style about, and there's different types of leaders, but the, the, the type of leadership that really resonates with me on a personal level is those whereby those working for that leader or with that leader within a team feel that it's them that have achieved the goal. So we did it as opposed to I followed the leader and that's what we achieved. So the, 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 the marks of good leadership is left by the team members feeling that they collectively work together towards achieving a goal. And thinking about your own personal leadership style and your role as creative director, how would you describe that? I would say that it's a mixture of um, putting standards and ideas out there for feedback and discussion and input, whereby I proactively like to encourage a out-of-the-box approach to things. So do understand the details of what we're trying to achieve, the intricate detail, then let the shackles reign free with regards to how you're um, going to innovatively approach um, the solutions to what we're looking to achieve. Um, The more practical, visual form of how I like to lead is by demonstrating that I am prepared to do any task that any member of the team that I'm working with but they don't feel that it's necessarily a top-down um, leadership um, approach. They know that they will uh, that what I might have to do. I am definitely willing to do myself, and probably have done that task myself in some form in the past or around them. So more, there is a mixture of um, inspiration and then showing that any meaningful any aspect of the task is is not too low for me to also get involved. I'll never uh, um, ask anything of anyone that I'm working with to do anything that I'm not prepared to do myself. Now, moving on to current affairs, Mark spoke an awful lot about how Salador has had to adapt to meet the challenges of COVID-19. From your perspective, how has it been, from a mental health point of view, helping manage that strategy, both for yourself and for your colleagues? Because it's been a successful time, ultimately, for uh, Salador in the way that you've adapted. But I can imagine an awful lot of sort of mental taxation really had to go into that. Yes. We have had to be, we've, it's actually, I have to take a step back. It was more of a, a, a test of some of the things that we as a company had put in and evolved over time um, in terms of our greater awareness of the mental health 
pressures and challenges that we face as leaders of a, and directors of a company, as well as our team. And um, but what happened with COVID-19 lockdown was a test of that infrastructure in place. Um, chiefly, communication, making sure that there are always open channels of communication that primarily have been set not just between myself and Mark, but equally as important to our team members, as well as our collective suppliers and the people we work for. So those are the four main areas that I felt were put under test or stress test during COVID-19. And what was good to see is that um, the safety measures or the, the, the infrastructure we put in place to make sure that communication channels primarily were there did work. Um, we've had feedback from our team, we've had feedback from our suppliers, we've had feedback from people that we work for, but that's something that they noted very um, early on. We were very proactive in doing, and it was of the standard that they actually looked to take um, and adopt in their own lines of communication and work. And, and that is something that we were very focused on um, from the very start, that we spoke and communicated to everyone around us with what we were seeing, how we interpreted it, and what it may it may do, not just for us, but for uh, individual members of the team and also what they're doing in terms of their industry. Um, Teladon's unique in that as a group, we also have members as part of our co-working space, Nexus, mm. a creative co-working space um, that by creatives. And that was also very important to make sure that the members of that were, had connections not just to us, but also to each other, and we fostered opportunities for them to communicate. And that led a long way to actually um, making sure, in terms of mental well-being, people were were being seen and heard, and being heard, and that being a, a part of our company um, catches that we really um, champion is um, integrity. And we, to be, uh, we speak very frankly about our lived experiences, the challenges that we faced. Um, and by sharing that, um, it opened up other people to maybe connect and have to empathize with their own situation or with ours mm. in that they don't feel that they're alone in terms of their experiences or how they feel with regards to their experiences. So that was very important. Communication was very much at the top of that. Um, at the same time, balance. Um, I'm personally very lucky to have a great circle of friends, a very supportive family um, around me, and leaning into having that as a, an infrastructure did help. And that is something that I also encouraged everyone around me to do, um, to be um, together. We very much believe that there is strength in unity, and mm -hmm. with that unity, you can um, traverse adversity. So, yeah, those are the first two key things was the communication and then making sure that the community, the culture, the tribe, the collectiveness of the people, they felt that. And with that, um, they could feel the, um, the motivation to meet the challenges that we're facing. 
And you mentioned, of course, the importance of your family and those closest to you um, as well. Um, when you're in a leadership role, I suppose it's just part and parcel of that, that people within your business hierarchy will look to you when they need a bit of inspiration and direction in the everyday, let alone at a time such as this. But when you are in yeah. a leadership role yourself and you're helping run the show and there isn't really anybody above you to look to, as it were, um, where is it that you tend to look to for that inspiration when you need it? Is it within yourself? Is it within your family? Uh, yes, it's a short answer. Within myself, within my family, uh, but equally important is in peers and other people mm. that I hold in high regard. Um, we also have a business coach um, who I have, we have been working with for a number of years, but I hold, and I'm sure Mark may, uh, will say the same, in very high regard. Um, and also, we have been both clever and also lucky to have uh, a very high standard of business partners that we've worked with throughout the years, our accountancy firm, our HR department firm, our, our lawyers, um, who are in their own right very professional, but in terms of engaging, in terms of the timeliness of information, um, dissecting information, because the key thing with actually the challenge with COVID-19 as a leader is just the sheer amount of information that was coming out in terms of what you needed to consume and then be in a position to communicate out or disseminate out into your team. And having the very best professional organizations that you work with in affiliation, giving you their take on that in very clear, plain language, really did go a long way in managing any kind of stress um, in that environment. And then having another very strong characteristic that we have in the company is trust. Having trust in your affiliates, your business partners, that what they do, they are experts in and know what they're talking about, um, has proven um, to be a very good thing to have um, at our disposal. So, yeah, leadership definitely did come um, from myself and looking at peers and family. Another thing that will, uh, I maybe caught me by surprise in a way because I don't, I don't necessarily look at myself as that. A lot of the, the what we were talked about or I experienced in terms of what I was being asked for was very much on a personal one-to-one level. That didn't necessarily have anything to do with anything to do with what we do in work or our dynamic relationship as manager or employee or creative director or the wider team. It was very personal in terms of feelings, family experiences, how they view their, their future. And it was actually being able to connect with people on a human level. That's what I felt I've been asked. That's been asked of me a lot more than necessarily um, my business acumen or my experience in going through recession or building a business in challenging economic times. It was very much more of the soft skills and the human element and connecting with people um, on a very, very natural basis in terms of what we we, we were experiencing collectively Mm. um, that I felt I was called a lot more it does um, show the importance of empathy within leadership and being able to get on an equal footing with those around you, that doesn't it? Uh, it's so important. Um, I'd, I'd go, maybe I'd even add that to being as equally as important in terms of the characteristics, of, in terms of leadership, um, where to really authentically, a lot of people use that word and band it around, 
Um, but you, 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 you can feel authenticity. Human beings can feel authenticity. You only have to look at series like The Uncanny Valley to understand that you cannot fake authenticity to a degree you can, but when you come across real authenticity, um, you feel it as well as see it. And that's where you really, uh, really will stride. And people will follow you when, when, when they believe that what you're saying, you would live by the words that are coming out of your own mouth as well. Absolutely right. And thinking now just about the uh, the future, uh, since our time is drawing to um, a close on the uh, the programme today, uh, Farouk, I do want to go over this just beforehand, though. Um, we know that over the course of the uh, the next 12 months, we're going to have to become accustomed to a new normal way of living and working. But one year from now, where do you see Celador going and what are you really hoping to achieve as a business? Yes, I, I agree with um your view in the future. Um, specific to Celador, I would like to see our experience of building uh, uh, and growing a business as we've done in the previous recession that we faced in the UK. I would like to see us being called upon by a lot more brands, local authorities, um, and people that require that experience, knowledge, and skill set to really get to grips as to what they want to achieve for themselves going forward. We are experts at growth culture, at inclusive inclusive um, events, um, strategies, consultancy work. And, and it's in times of chaos that we found that our skill sets resonate the most. And having us brought in at the earliest opportunity to communicate and consult on, on individuals and companies um, strategies is something that I would like to see a lot more of um, from Celador. Um, so very much um, will stand by the work that we have done in that arena, and I can see a lot, um, a lot of opportunities where people um, need our input in that respect. So there is no going back to the new normal, and if you're thinking of just going back to the same old way that you used to work, the same old way or the same supplies that you use communicating in the same fashion will soon get found out because the, the, the macroeconomic um, environment that we're operating in has changed forever. It, you have to, not, you've got to be more than just saying that you think at the box. You've got to be more than just saying that you, you, you've got to do something new when the decision makers and the people that are affecting that are still in effect the same people doing the same thing. Um, that won't cut it. So I'm not to see Senador in a lot more of activity in guiding people through this and activating the events. Um, and I would like to see a lot more um, activity where we continue to do our activities more globally. Certainly sounds like it's going to be a time of innovation and change and a really exciting time um, at that as uh, the company gets to grips with the uh, the new normal, Farouk. And um, as I've said uh, to Mark, I actually think it would be wonderful, just given how enlightening it's been having you both join us to catch up in future and welcome the pair of you back onto our programme, just to see in the next few months just how those plans are really coming to fruition. I would love to um, be invited back. I think the, the Leaders' Council is a fantastic platform um, to be engaged with and I'll very much love to continue to contribute to that. 
Yes, it would be our pleasure to welcome you on. It's always fantastic to give the authentic voices of British industry a voice, especially at a time like this. And also as well, most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on as well, because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with the COVID-19 situation yet. No, we're not. Caution is still very much a part of, part of our lived life and should be. And um, likewise, uh, I wish you to be stay safe and well. And I would reiterate that same message to all of those tuning in and listening today. Do continue to be sensible with the lifting of restrictions and look after yourselves and others. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, joining us next on the programme today will be Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and all of that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists 
is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said 
why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. 
in some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shut, cut, uh, shut down, 
Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? 
I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, 
a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says 
that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.